We were at a dinner party. And this person is quite senior in a very, 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 I would say, progressive company. And we got on to the conversation about disability inclusion. And this person who is a really good human being said, well, the thing is, you don't realise we really couldn't have a disabled person talk to our clients. Wow. Okay, mic drop, right. Now, first of all, that company is a brilliant company. Secondly, that person is somebody I would genuinely say did not even realise what they said. But that to me is, how are we still saying that? How are we still saying that? And that just shows that if anybody tells me we still don't have more awareness and we don't have work to do, yes, we do. Because, look, business is one of the most powerful forces on our planet. I don't even have to make the case anymore for the 13 trillion that we represent. It will be a risk to the brand. It will be a risk to the employee base. It will be a risk to innovation. I'm kind of past the hustling. I'm past the begging. It's like, we're here to help you. It's your opportunity. Hello and welcome to Working It with me, Isabel Berwick. Today we're discussing disability at work. In this instance, we're discussing disability in the broadest sense, from physical to mental illness and neurodiversity. And that's one of the things that makes this topic so easy to avoid at work. People act like it's too big, there are too many subsections and too many allowances for too many people. But in 2022, are people starting to be more open about disabilities at work? And are workplaces fostering cultures that enable that? To find out, we're hearing from a chat I had with Caroline Casey. She's the founder of The Valuable 500. It's a global business collective made up of 500 CEOs and their companies, all of whom have made a pledge to improve disability inclusion. I became a campaigner and an activist sort of by accident. There was no plan. But the moment when that happened is when I was working for Accenture as a management consultant. I have a rare uh, genetic condition called ocular albinism, which means I'm actually registered blind. But I had covered that for all of my career to that point. And just as we came into 2000, just a long time ago now, I came out of the closet about my sight and my disability. And I've been fascinated by the fact that business has been very absent from the table of eradicating disability exclusion because 15% of our global population have a lived experience. And with a mother and a father, that's 53% of our economy. And I think that's been my obsession, really. So I think that's how I kind of fell into it. And you founded the Valuable 500. Are CEOs and senior leaders ever open about their own disabilities or how has that gone? When we began the Valuable 500, we did a piece of research with EY. 7% of our CEOs have a lived experience of disability. Four out of five of them are hiding it. What does that mean about the culture of their company? If they're worried, whatever reason they have, not to tell their experience of it, then we're kind of saying it's not okay to talk about disability, right? The other piece of research that was really frightening that we did in the last sort of 10 months was with Tortoise. We looked at our FTSE 100 companies over senior level. We have not one person who identifies as having a disability in our FTSE 100 companies. Now, that is not true because 80% of disability is invisible. So if they're not going to talk about it, then why would an employee talk about it? When somebody like Elon Musk, who came out in June and talked about his Asperger's, that might not sound like a big story, but that 
is a big story. It is important when Richard Branson actually owned his dyslexia because what it's saying, it's signalling, it's okay. But at the moment, we've got a lot of uncovering to do. So a lot of CEOs and influential people are hiding their disabilities, what you might call masking, and that's understandable. People with declared disabilities may risk losing their jobs, or if they're senior, they may worry that they'll lose status. In the year to April 2019, so just before the pandemic, 7,000 people in the UK alone brought legal cases alleging disability discrimination at work. And that's a jump of 26% in just one year. And remember, only a fraction of people who are discriminated against or lose their jobs will ever bring a formal case. So we'll get on to the wider implications in a bit and try and work out why only half of the UK's 7.7 million disabled people are in work. And how organisations can do better to hire and retain, and most importantly, what we can all do to create change and more inclusion in our own workplaces. But first, what about those silent CEOs? So... My worry is that any CEO who's masking a neurodivergent condition is not working at his or her best. That's Naomi Rovnik. She's an FT reporter whose day job is making sense of the financial markets for our readers. She recently discovered she was dyspraxic after her son was diagnosed with autism. And the diagnosis has made her look at her work and in fact her entire career in a whole new way. They're probably burning out and they're probably not going to stay in that job for very long. What would be the ideal situation is if they could communicate to their stakeholders. Do you know what? Because of my ADHD or because of my dyspraxia, I'm brilliant at pattern spotting. I'm a great performer. I'm really creative. I'm very entrepreneurial and resilient. But you need to look at me when I speak in board meetings and allow me to speak as myself and not consider me strange. And then you'll get the best out of me. So further down the employment hierarchy, there's often a lot of talk about employers just can't find the diverse talent. It's just not out there. And I talked to Caroline about the ways in which employers can seek more diverse talent and be much more inclusive to people with disabilities. 47% of our Valuable 500 companies in the piece of research we've done said, we can't find disabled people. That's what they're saying. However, in the UK alone, with Virgin Media and Scope, we have discovered there are 1.1 million people with a disability who want to work but are being denied the opportunity. Now, that is a complete misfit. So what's happening? Right now, or my experience of understanding it, if you said you had a disability, the accommodation, you see the business nearly rolling its eyes and going, oh God, what do you need? But we've just had COVID, right? Everybody needed accommodations. Exactly. I was going to ask about that. Everybody needed accommodation. So now business system, in 17 days you changed all the things that you said you couldn't do. Well, you did because you needed to and you wanted to. And it wasn't about disability. It was about the kind of chair I was going to have or the computer I was going to have. Everybody had needs. We have different needs and requirements to level the playing field. So this is the greatest chance we have to do this because still at the bottom of disability business inclusion remains fear, damage, weakness. And I think one of the other things that's coming out of the pandemic, and perhaps we're just at the very beginning of starting to scratch the surface of this, is people with disabilities arising from COVID or mental health issues arising from the long periods of isolation. And of course, long COVID, we just Mm. don't know very much about that. What would you say to managers in companies about accommodating this big new cohort of people who have new disabilities? 
I feel for managers. Here's my colleague Naomi Rovnik again. I speak to a lot of managers and heads of department and CEOs in my work. And one said to me over dinner the other day, you know, I'm trying to be really accommodating, but people are saying things like, I can't come back to the office in London because I moved to Ipswich or I can't come back because I don't really like it. (laughs) And and you've got to, it depends on the job. You've got to have people around you. But I think if somebody in your team has had long COVID or they have anxiety or they're getting anxiety because of the thought of coming back, I think you have to just say to them, and I think this applies to all adjustments for disabilities, what do you need? So no manager has to come up with a strategy for me which also might be a strategy for like people who've got dyscalculia or hyperlexia or OCD or bipolar or menopause. The strategy is, what do you need? How can we get the most out of you while keeping you well? What I've agreed informally with my bosses is that I come in probably twice a week, but I don't come in for 0700. It was interesting, we had a, an intern a couple of years ago who has cystic fibrosis and she wrote a piece for us which I'll put in the show notes about how she you know she's obviously Gen Z she's very open about her condition she has to go to hospital and she needs accommodation for those appointments and she got to quite a final stage of her interviews when she would disclose and then she was ghosted by multiple employers and this is so interesting this is one of the best interns we've ever had and I'm pleased to say she's got a great job now but, you know, it's this is real, this discrimination against even the younger generation who are very open and who are coming at it with and owning it. And there's this sort of block. So I asked Caroline Casey what she believes managers and leaders can and should do to retain disabled talent. There are three things that we would say. Another piece of information that we got from our companies, 63% of our companies have no idea about their employees who have lived experience or connection to disability. So the first thing we'd say to any organisation, go and talk to your people and find out their connection to disability. You have to find that out because that's a dearth of intelligence and innovation that you're missing. Do you have employee resource groups? You know, if you have them for other protected characteristics, do you have for disability? And if you do, what the most important thing is to get executive sponsorship of that because that's the permission, that's the space. The most important thing any company can do now is say, you know what, we don't know. Help us. Teach us. What is your experience? Talk to your employees, whether that's through confidential surveys or whether that's through ERGs or, most importantly, whether that's through our leaders standing up and saying, this is my experience. My biggest concern right now, people are very worried about causing offence. And in the fear of causing offence, nothing gets done. I'd rather somebody gets it wrong with the right intention than do nothing at all. One of the things that Caroline just said there and that struck me was don't be afraid to fail and don't be afraid to talk about it at work and don't be afraid to make mistakes. People are so wary about doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing. So I wanted to look at who's doing this well and what we can learn from them and actually being really brutal about it because I know some listeners will be thinking it. Why should you care about getting disabled talent? I guess the answer is that there are huge advantages to having a diverse workforce in all ways, as Caroline and Naomi were showing us. And we are in a massive global talent shortage. It's time to look wider for that talent. And as for your existing staff, Naomi's advice is to ask your staff with disabilities what it is they need. And the phrase that comes to my mind is nothing for us without us. That's the very important campaigning slogan that disability campaigners rightly demand. 
And in the UK, for example, disabled people are entitled to reasonable adjustments at work to enable them to do their jobs. And that could mean offering flexibility about where and when the staff member works, or it might mean making adjustments to your physical workspace, such as changing doorknobs for handles and making sure there's enough space between desks for wheelchairs to pass through, as well as quiet spaces for neurodiverse people to be alone. And there are loads of examples of businesses that are going beyond this into the wider business ecosphere. So, for example, Marriott International, the US hotel chain, is working to diversify its supply chains to include more businesses owned by people with disabilities. But if we're going to make any progress in terms of including our disabled and neurodiverse colleagues in the workplace and really acting to include them and promote them in the same way as we've had loads of schemes and actions for women, for people of colour, for our LGBT plus colleagues, that's got to start now because people with disabilities have been left behind and we all know it. So we've got to pick this post-pandemic moment to make the change. Thanks to Caroline Casey and Naomi Rovnik for this episode. And I'll put links to Caroline's campaigns and some FT articles about disability and neurodiversity at work in the show notes, including that piece I mentioned by one of our interns about how she was ghosted while applying for jobs. And please do get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. We're at workingit at ft.com and I'm at Isabel Berwick on Twitter. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times. With thanks to our producer, Anna Sinfield, executive producer, Joe Wheeler, and we have editorial direction from the FT's Renee Kaplan and production support from Persis Love. Thank you for listening.